I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. It's always a treat to do stuff with the Exploratorium. I was a biology student in the 50s at Stanford, uh, majoring in ecology and evolution. And I only did one silly little field study and then went off and did other things, the Army and so on. But I've wanted to keep track of what's going on in biology, ecology, evolution, and the rest of it, uh, the rest of my life. And it turned out the easy way to do that was just to watch what Edward O. Wilson was up to. The, one revolution in science after another came from his work, starting with, uh, well, starting with his work on ants, basically figuring out the great mysteries of ants, how they communicate, how the social insects function. But then he would step right outside and do things like uh, island biogeography, which uh, basically revolutionized ecology, population biology, and the understanding of extinction processes. He went on to things like sociobiology, highly controversial at the time, later proved to be quite right. He introduced the term biodiversity and made that as a, a nice statement of a generalized goal that conservation is all about. He's done this time after time. And the treat of the current book, The Social Conquest of Earth, is at the age of 82, You've sold off and done it again. We'll hear about it right now. Edward O. Wilson. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Semper, Rob, Dr. Brand, Stewart, ladies and gentlemen, friends, colleagues. Uh, and Paul Gauguin's 1898 Tahitian masterpiece, which he, which he intended to be his last work before he committed suicide. He, uh, he gave the title in the upper left-hand corner uh, as three famous questions. Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? These happen to be the central questions of religion and philosophy. Through millennia, we've thought and argued um, about the first two questions, where do we come from and what are we? Will we ever be able to solve them? Sometimes it seems not. Yet, perhaps we can. Religion will never provide the answers. The reason that each organized religion, and there are hundreds of them, has its own different creation story in competition with all the others. Each creation story was written uh, in times and circumstances when the authors knew almost nothing about the universe, the planet, life on Earth, and the prehistory of the human condition. And each considers its, its creation story in answer to uh, where do we come from and what are we to be the correct one and also set in stone, and superior to all of the others. Each was born from the dreams and speculations of shamans and prophets. 
They cannot all be correct. No two can be correct. None, in fact, is consistent with our growing knowledge of the universe, the planet, life on Earth, or the prehistory of the human condition. We also look in vain at current academic philosophy for the answer to the great question, the great riddle. Despite its normal, normal purpose and history, despite its effectiveness in training the mind to inquire and think logically, professional secular philosophy long ago gave up trying to answer the overall question, what is the meaning of life? Most of the history of philosophy is strewn with the wreckage of theories of the conscious mind. After the decline of logical positivism in the middle of the last century and the attempt to join science and logic into a closed system, philosophers are scattered in an intellectual diaspora into those areas not yet colonized by science, intellectual history, mathematics, foundational mathematics, ethics, and most profitably, problems of personal adjustment. <laughs> By default, then, the solution of the great riddle has been left to science, to knowledge of the real world that can be tested and shared with every person. What science promises and is already supplied in heart, in part, is the following. There is a real creation story of humanity, and one only, and it is not a myth. It's being worked out and tested and enriched and strengthened step by step. What I'm going to attempt now is to tell you that story. It comes together from multiple disciplines, from molecular genetics and neuroscience and evolutionary biology to ecology and archaeology and psychology and all the way to history. And it has come from my own gleaning of the primary literature, especially of the last 20 years, from premier journals. And it is uh, the piecing together like a jigsaw puzzle that I've been attempting and not an idea that just sprang from my head. To make that effort, let me first define the very high level of social complexity called you sociology. You means, well, literally gentle, pleasant, uh, but it's also, we take it to mean true, or the, the central condition. It is the existence of groups over multiple generations in which adult members rear the young collectively and vary longevity or reproduction of themselves or both in ways that enhance the complexity and success of the social system. There are countless thousands of animal species that form groups of different kinds, and some are dramatic, like the gorilla, uh, but almost all of the gorillas and other animals fall short of youth sociality. They lack a consistent division of reproduction and labor based upon altruistic behavior. I have before you now the two social conquerors of Earth. In fact, true eusociality has originated on the terrestrial part of the planet only very rarely. I count some two dozen times throughout the history of life. 
of which we have record variously in several kinds of insects and crustaceans, twice in the mole rats of Africa and then once in the human lion. It doesn't happen at all until quite late in evolutionary time from the early Mesozoic about 150 million years ago. When it did occur, then it produced species that dominate the environment. The ants and termites alone, even though uh, there are approximately 15,000 known species, are only a tiny fraction of the one million known species of insects make up in most habitats of the world as much as half of all of the biomass. They absolutely rule the invertebrate land and uh, living environment. And humans, of course, are the dominant of dominance. <laughs> Ants in most parts of the world uh, weigh as much as four times all of the vertebrates put together, all of the land vertebrates, birds, amphibians, reptiles, uh, mammals, as indicated in this little diagram showing the jaguar, and then the relative size of the biomass of all the ants found in the same locality, in this case in the, era, in the Amazon. And finally and strikingly, it is a very, this very small array of evolutionary lines uh, that have been the most persistent through evolution. Once acquired, then uh, the matter was settled as who was going to rule the world, so to speak, in uh, terms of dominance and ecological impact on the rest of life. So, here are, then are the two important mysteries of evolutionary biology relevant to the origin of eusociality and hence of the uh, condition, the human condition. These are two questions not asked heretofore to my knowledge, by biologists, or any scientists, it just didn't occur to them apparently ever to think that this is what we need to know first before we can explain where we came from and what we are. First, that youth sociality being given, given that it's so successful, why is it so very rare and why did it take so long to originate in evolution? And then the second great question, largely unanswered, but I'll be addressing it, is what is the force in evolution? What kind of selection pressure drove it? This is the setting we need to address in order to understand the origin of humanity. And these are the uh, questions that biologists and anthropologists uh, have not yet answered. Uh, It did take a long time. During the Paleozoic period, uh, 400 to 250 million years ago, the coal forest of the earth teemed with insects of great variety. By that time, some of the major groups like the beetles, uh, the mayflies, dragonflies, and cockroaches had appeared and they were radiating into many species. They were very, very prominent. But there were many other uh, groups of insects which went extinction, to extinction with the Permian crash uh, 250 million years ago. And they included 
insects you never heard of, Paleodictyoptera, Proteolotroptera, and so on. The first, uh, uh, thus the first great covering of the world by insects yielded no eusociality that we are aware of. And uh, vertebrate life, hmm, vertebrate life is uh, similarly very tardy. Throughout the Mesozoic, we had dinosaurs of great variety, many of which were bipedal and uh, had free hands. And yet, and they had the capacity, no more, no less than some of the primates, uh, to develop a larger brain than ever did. If they had, the dinosauroids of the Mesozoic who took over the world instead of waiting for the mammals to do it, might have looked like the creature on the right. The first ants and termites appeared, but in the Mesozoic. Uh, and um, then slowly built up to a dominant position by the early part of the, uh, of the Cenozoic, some 65 million years ago, they began to take over in big time. Now, this is the evolutionary maze. To explain what happened, or better usually, did not happen, let me offer the metaphor of the evolutionary maze. Species proceed through the maze step by step, led by action of natural selection, generation by generation, on the genomes they possess and the environments they occupy each present instant of time. They are not moving in a particular direction because they are drawn in that direction or because there is any such thing to our knowledge of evolutionary progress. They are simply moving like particles at random uh, in uh, the surrounding forces, uh, driven by the surrounding forces of natural selection. They can move in one direction and say we are now tracing uh, the movement of solitary, very primitively social creatures from the upper left-hand co corner all the way through the maze and if they can come out, the, uh, take the final step, they will be eusocial. Move in one direction or another, moment by moment, they can stall, they can even regress. It's a matter of luck to reach any point in that maze, and that is achieved by a series of particular steps, each, which, each of which uh, may or may not take place. If we look retrospectively, is in, in, at the result in which we are interested, in this case, use sociality, then we can speak of the steps as pre-adaptations. Uh, there is a final step in the origin of use sociality, that event that has occurred, of which we have record some two dozen times. Uh, the final step that takes it across the final the threshold from solitary or elementary group to use sociality. What is that final step? I'm going to show you. This is something I know people have not thought about. It turns out when you look at the evolutionary steps that have led up to most of these cases, all the ones we can track the evolution uh, in, that that final step the final pre-adaptation 
that takes the species to the threshold and the evolutionary maze uh, is the building of a complicated nest, defensible, from which individuals, a female or a mated pair, or maybe a small, simple group, forage and pick up food that they bring home to feed the immatures until the immatures reach maturity. And in most cases where that occurs, then they all disperse and begin yet another cycle of individuals building a defended nest. But in a few cases, these rare cases, uh, the young do not leave. They stay, and then we have a eusocial, a primitively eusocial society. In A, we see uh, marine shrimp that actually build nests in sponges in shallow marine water. And on five occasions, it's known, uh, independently, uh, these type of synalpheus shrimp have evolved primitive eusociality. The queen is in the middle, the workers around her, and one of the workers is guarding the entrance to their nest. On the right, we have the sweat on B. We have the sweat bees, have licked bees, that have built nests in the soil. And once again, uh, when the young stay with the parent, then they, in one short step, it could be by a single mutation silencing the tendency to disperse. We have it created. So this must have happened many times before because there are large numbers of species that have made it to that final threshold, but they do not cross it. Or if they cross it, uh, then the species goes extinct. That mutant form becomes extinct. And why is that? It is because the group as a whole has to succeed in competition with solitary individuals and other groups of other kinds that are actually in opposition to it in competition. And for reasons we have not yet investigated, but it's now wide open to do so, uh, group selection has to be powerful in order to come overcome the effects of individual level selection. Individual level selection has been uh, uh, working for uh, tens to hundreds of million years in these evolutionary lines. And uh, the species is in every way adapted to individual level selected traits to see it through a successful life cycle. So when the group is formed, it's something new in this manner. There has to be such a powerful advantage to that group staying together that it overcomes uh, individual level selection. The uh, beetles in C are an example of the wrong way to get to youth sociality. Not that they're trying, but uh, the, uh, there are large numbers of these uh, pre-social uh, species of organisms, including a lot of beetles, in which, uh, as in this case, the parent beetles herd the, the uh, larvae along. They take care of them. They take them from one food source to another. And never, to our knowledge, does a migratory group of this, without the nest, without foraging away and bringing food to the larvae, never has led to eusociality. So this is a pretty strict requirement, uh, pre-requirement, pre-adaptation to move on. Few, quite a few of the um, 
uh, of, of species are at the threshold. Chimpanzees and gorillas, for example, are shown here, African wild dogs, but they have not taken the final step. So why they have not is a remaining evolutionary question of uh, very uh, considerable importance. Now I'm going to uh, recent primary uh, literature to trace the steps that have been worked out by many uh, scientists to trace the steps that uh, the prehumans took to create a eusocial human. In other words, went through the pre-adaptations to lead from the split between the prehuman and chimpanzee line, lines some six million years ago. Now this is a synthesis, as I say, of a great deal of work. And I have based it carefully upon existing peer-reviewed reports in key journals. Here is the first step. Get out of the trees. The chimpanzees did this, and uh, the idea is to become bipedal and free the hands. The chimpanzees uh, are not really bipedal. They're quadrupedal. They still knuckle walk uh, for most of their uh, locomotion, but they can stand and walk on the hind legs but they just didn't do it the right way. Uh, the chimps, nonetheless, as many of you know, <clears throat> that line with the two species, the chimpanzee and the bonobo, have achieved an awful lot of advanced behavior, including social behavior. They have cultures in which from troop to troop or from region to region, from Senegal to Kenya or wherever, uh, different groups have their own cultures that have, they've invented throwing stones, or in this case, for example, uh, using uh, pieces of wood or the bones of animals to dig up tubers. But that's it. They haven't gone beyond that. This is the habitat in which the chimp lions lived all that time and in which the human lions live. And these are hunters gatherer bushmen who are showing the same appearance, physical appearance, we are fairly certain, and uh, modes of life uh, that uh, the, uh, the ancestors for all modern homo sapiens in the world were following when the breakout from Africa 60,000 years ago. And this is the habitat uh, in which it occurred, the savanna and the grassland. Artipithecus. We don't have much material on this creature that lived 4.4 million years ago, but here we had a completely bipedal, straight up walking primate. The only thing was that it was, um, it had the, uh, still had the brain size of a chimpanzee. This very likely is an ancestor of the human line going way back. Artipithecus, or something very close to it, in time gave rise to a whole series of species that uh, appeared, as many as three living in Africa at the same time, of the Australopithecines. They were erect, clearly, uh, at least one was in line to create Homo later on. They were vegetarian, 
They were specialized for different types of vegetable food and ways of getting it probably and, and habitats in which they had occurred. So in the typical manner of an adaptive radiation, species multiplied and they filled different niches. Uh, again, the Australopithecines uh, underwent only a very slight increase in brain size from the chimp, from the chimp volume, 400 centimeters, maybe to 500 cubic centimeters. If, uh, say, three million years ago, E.T. had landed and looked over the fauna of Earth and it had seen the Australopithecines striding around on the African soil, eating fruit and uh, communicating back by sounds with each other like chimps, they would have made no special mensch, uh, note of it. Uh, but some three to two million years ago, a remarkable event happened as illustrated here. The brain size, after remaining static for all that period of time, suddenly began to increase. And it went through a steep incline of increase, primarily in the, fore, uh, the forebrain, uh, unlike any other uh, evolution in, in rate of a complex organ of what we, uh, of which we know, and, that, and thus was created uh, eventually the genus Homo. This is what happened starting three to two million years ago. What caused this sudden departure? One line of um, the Australopithecines began to eat more meat, started becoming more of a carnivore. We know that from bone structure from changes in the skull, and uh, the, uh, it was pretty clear that they had changed their diet somewhat from a more purely uh, carnivorous diet, from a purely vegetarian diet. Um, and uh, even today, chimps, if I've got these figures right, chimps uh, get on average about 3%, 3% of their calories from meat scavenging and from hunting to some extent. They hunt vervet monkeys, uh, gangs of males do. But the average consumption worldwide for humanity is closer to one-third. And this is something of this nature has happened then in uh, this period at about two and a half million years ago. And it's here that we see uh, the brain size sufficient having increased substantially, and the bone structure of the face to uh, place it in the genus Homo, no longer in the genus Australopithecus. And we can surmise, but have no direct proof, that by this time they were uh, working out of campsites and uh, bringing the prey and meat uh, to uh, the campsite and sharing it there. We can surmise that but we don't know it for sure. We certainly know that it happened by the time uh, Homo erectus, a direct descendant of the Havilines, had come into existence by two million years. We have direct evidence of campsites with controlled fire, not hard to do. All you've got to do is pick up burning uh, branches from uh, lightning struck ground fires, which occur at frequent intervals through the African savanna. 
And of course, they would have also encountered Bob in, uh, uh, animals killed by the fire and partly or wholly cooked so that it was easier to digest. And thus, the Homo uh, skull crutcher, the, 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 our, our dentition, our gut uh, began to change to uh, feed on cooked food, including meat. Here is the nest. That's the campsite where we know they came and stayed for a long time. They went out from there, some went out, and they uh, uh, divided labor in that manner. Sixty thousand years ago, then, after substantial more evolution within Africa, <clears throat> leading to a modern form of Homo sapiens, the breakout occurred from Africa, and that species quickly from through the Nile corridor, and that uh, uh, breakout resulted in rapid spread across Asia, and on across into uh, New Guinea and beyond into Australia. Uh, as uh, we see here, as illustrated, the first Australians. And this is the way uh, we believe all of our ancestors looked 60,000 years ago, something like this. They have evolved too, but we've evolved at least in, in skin color, uh, and as most Europeans have, and Asians uh, in other ways. But I can say, uh, not in cognitive ability, it is demonstrably about the same. The um, signature behavior of the groups of the newly evolved and spreading humans was aggression between groups. And we think of uh, the uh, Yanomamo of Northern South America, for example, as being unusually aggressive. But that has been true in intervals of virtually all human society, periods of extreme aggression. Uh, as uh, right into history, as William James said, history is a bloodbath. The Mayans depicted their wars and, and genocides and sacrifice uh, proudly. Uh, on the walls of uh, the caves of uh, Spain and France uh, back to 32,000 years ago is a large amount of art that's not ordinarily displayed uh, in uh, the uh, art of uh, published of the Grote Charvet and other of the classical uh, cave art murals. There's a lot of graffiti, some of which would not be appropriate for hanging on your own wall. In addition, there's abundant evidence of killings of people, uh, men primarily by spear. And this seems most likely to have been the depiction of uh, raids, vengeance raids, territorial raids 
occurring frequently. Now, uh, let me just remind you with a quick diagram of what individual level selection is. This would be the way it would look, say, in the change of bird color. If the uh, environment were such that a dark blue for a particular bird, in this case it's an imaginary example, and there were a series of alleles or distinct genes that uh, darkened or lightened the plumage color in an environment in which the genes were competing and individuals were competing with their offspring uh, in uh, regaining resources, including nest sites and food and so on, then uh, we would expect to see generation by generation the gradual shift of the genes in the population to those prescribing darker blue color. That's it, simple Darwinism. In contrast, the um, evolution by group selection, which is demonstrable, particularly in the social insects, where we have from group selection, which is going on all the time, ants and termites are the most warlike of all known creatures. Their colonies are always in conflict and war. One colony will destroy another neighboring colony if it is able to overcome them. Uh, and uh, the uh, results of this, in part, has to be the amazing, uh, spectacular display of, uh, of caste of all kinds and the morphology, behavior, and the like. There is no other explanation, as Bert Holdobler and I have pointed out at length in our book, The Superorganism. Uh, it was occurring almost certainly in human beings as well. It was Darwin who, in the origin of species, embraced group selection, which uh, in recent years has become disfavored. Uh, but he saw that this was how to explain the origin of the worker caste of ants, uh, the only way that he could explain it that did not uh, become a, a serious threat that might destroy his whole theory of natural selection. So he made a big point of it in the origin of species. Then in the descent of man, Darwin turned to uh, humans and said the same thing is happening in humans. He described clearly group selection. What happens is that traits <clears throat> that uh, are um, under the control of genetic prescription uh, in interaction among individuals from particularly forms of communication are, um, but also all other forms of interaction between the due of social nature are favored or disfavored by the natural selection caused by competition of group against group. So, this brings us then to the distinction that we are now approaching, it's called multi-level. And it's individual selection, like the birds, uh, occurs when individuals compete with members of the same group on the basis of these traits. Group selection of genetic traits occurs when groups of compete with other groups on the basis of interactions of social individuals within each group. Overall, uh, individual 
of selection within groups engenders selfish behavior, allow me to call it sin, uh, and group selection engenders cooperative behavior. How did it come that human beings uh, began to engage in group selection that led to advanced social behavior? We have a pretty good idea from work uh, by cognitive and social psychologists during the last 10 to 20 years. <clears throat> and it is the observation that human beings have two powerful, clearly instinctual traits that are so prevalent and so strong and universal uh, that we never or rarely think of them as human traits. We just think of them as being there like air and water part of nature. The first one is our intense uh, need to form groups, and we form them easily, sometimes arbitrarily, sometimes around a common cause, a team sport. It can be based on anything. It can be kin groups, but more likely it is uh, groups of common interest and common geographic origin. And these groups then form and they are, uh, as social psychologists have shown in um, experiments, even when they are arbitrarily uh, uh, formed, uh, that is uh, a selection, are made of teams of volunteers to belong to a group and compete games, simple games, with other randomly selected individuals among, uh, among volunteers <clears throat> in short order. Uh, each group thinks of itself, its members, as being smarter and more trustworthy. And this is a powerful uh, instinct that we have to do that and to live by our groups and to identify ourselves by the groups. And the second powerful uh, influence that we have uh, uh, is to constantly evaluate one another. Uh, human beings are obsessively interested in other human beings. They uh, spend all of their time, a very large part of their time, thinking about individuals that they know, and as the psychologists call it, reading intention. The ability to read intention is uh, developed so much in human beings that we are geniuses at it. And as a result, uh, we can create the social networks within groups uh, that give us the largest chance of success and survival. But it also generates, while we're doing it, uh, so many of the human traits that form in per endless permutation the subject matter of fiction and other literature. And that is all that we can do, all that we intensely desire to do to form bonds, to form groups, uh, to cooperate, and that was the key, to cooperate in, uh, in, in conflict with other groups, and internally to engage in affection, in uh, bonds, uh, and as well as to deceive, manipulate, control. That's what so much of human social activity consists of, and we are obsessed with, with doing it. Those two are the keys that come from group selection, but they also include uh, what we call the basic virtues, 
and the willingness to be altruistic and self-sacrificing. Those of you who followed recent literature and evolutionary theory may recognize that this account of the driving force of the origin of human sociality and other sociality, all the other cases I mentioned, is at variance with the traditional theory of the evolution of altruistic behavior and eusociality by kin selection and its pro supposed product, the measure of inclusive fitness. Two years ago, two mathematicians of the first rank, Martin Novak and Corina Tarnita at Harvard, as I showed that the basis, uh, basic assumptions of the inclusive fitness theory uh, are mathematically unsound, and second, that the biological explanations that have been derived from it to try to you know, explain it by kin selection uh, are uh, easily or and probably better explained by multi-level selection of the kind I've just given you. Individual level selection and group selection or the combination thereof. Kin selection uh, suggested or uh, posited that <clears throat> it is groups of kin that come together that become altruistic because they can be altruistic uh, uh, and not lose genes, their own genes, prescribing their own behavior. Because if they are with a, with a close relative, a, a brother, I'm talking about collateral relatives now, not offspring, the universal Darwinian individual level selection. If they're collateral uh, uh, relatives, brother, sister, cousins, uh, nephew, niece, and so on, then if they sacrifice some of their longevity, they sacrifice some of their security uh, uh, and, um, and wealth to support altruistically these close relatives, uh, then the, you can have a group forming and it can grow by this kind of behavior and the spread of the genes that promote it <clears throat> into a, an advanced social group. Unfortunately, that is mathematically incorrect. And uh, the, uh, the mathematical argument after 18 months caused, how should the British call it, a, a fluttering of the uh, dovecote? Um, the, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, considerable blowback for those who <clears throat> were working in that field and using that theory. Nonetheless, after 18 months, there has been no, uh, uh, none have addressed the mathematical argument. There's no objection to it. And second, no critique that I've seen of the alternative explanations by multi-level selection and particularly group selection uh, that would propose as alternative to those explanations that have been provided by kin selection. So I've covered this subject in considerable depth in the book, The Coastal Conquest of Earth. And if interested, you can pursue the subject there and I felt that I needed to tell you, to give you a caveat, uh, that in terms of uh, opinion, uh, this is not settled. Uh, but uh, with the fact that quite a few uh, refuse to accept an alternative to kin selection theory means nothing because the um, science is not conducted by polls. And moreover, uh, the, uh, we have a substantial group of scholars, 
and other mathematical and uh, evolutionary theorists who are uh, convinced that our approach is probably the correct one. In any case, uh, if we are right, and we are right, <laughs> the, door is, the door is now fully open for a fuller examination of the biological origins of human nature. The applications of kin selection were very narrow in the scope that they could make any explanations of sound convincing. I'm going now to move quickly to a close just by mentioning in passing uh, other human instincts may or may not be uh, subject to this type of, uh, of social multi-level selection but nonetheless uh, should persuade us a bit more than we have been persuaded generally, even the academic community, that we do have irrational behaviors that are the residue of that long prehistory that uh, brought us to where we are today. And also to persuade you uh, that uh, history can explain, explain a lot, but it is sharply truncated uh, and stops at the birth of literacy, and that we have to go on back and back to understand the origins of the human condition. That history makes no sense without prehistory, and prehistory makes no sense without biology, and it is here in the relation between biology and history itself that will be one of the uh, junctures, symbiotic relation between disciplines in two of the great branches of learning. Uh, first, I'll just mention uh, that um, one of the consequences of this connection between, of the, of the conflict between group selection and individual level selection is that it is unstable. Uh, we are a conflicted species and we will be a conflicted species forever because we cannot go to either extreme all the way to individual level selection that would dissolve the society, not all the way to group selection that would make us angelic robots. We're going to be caught suspended in the middle, and this is a good explanation as we have of why human beings are so fundamentally conflicted, and particularly uh, just within their own uh, families, but in their own group and also internationally. Um, and that may be if all of the cases of uh, known eusociality in all these very different groups of organisms, and we never really gave serious thought to this before, but if all of them were created the same way, and they appear certainly to have been created the same way, follow the same track through the maze, then it may well be possible that this is the only way that you can reach a home, human level of intelligence and social organization. And if that is true, that is a very fundamental constraint on the way social behavior in advanced organization uh, and intelligence can be developed anywhere. So maybe that's the only way that it's ever occurred if it has for the rest of the universe. Just a thought. <clears throat> uh, now for the, um, I'm gonna pass on to the origins of intelligence and culture. I cover them in the book, but I don't have time to go into them now. Uh, and, but I just wanted to show you a couple of amazing things that people don't realize about themselves. That 
uh, a result of their <clears throat> sensory apparatus, the constraints on their sensory apparatus, and um, they tend to be irrational. I mean, they're beyond conscious control. Of these three designs, the ones that uh, arouse you the most, are, that's the one in the center. I guarantee you that that's the case. You can see the impact you know, on, on the brain, uh, on arousal, the stamping of the alpha waves. Uh, and this is quite possibly behind a lot of culture. Namely, uh, for example, in the level of complexity and design of pictographs, it's shown in this uh, Japanese example, the beautiful uh, Punjabi text, the uh, levels of complexity commonly seen in so-called primitive art. Even in modern design, as for example in this uh, magazine or journal cover some time ago, uh, the artist has chosen to represent the brain at that level of complexity. And down at the lower left-hand corner, you will see uh, the, uh, the logo graph of the uh, American Academy of Arts and Sciences has that level. Now we come to the preferred habitat. Many of you may have heard of this. That uh, Cross-cultural tests have shown that when people can choose any habitation, location where they can live, they have their habitation, and thus they have a view out. They choose three features. They want to be on the rise. They want to look out over a park, a park, read savanna, and they want a body of water next to it. And that's what they will pay extremely high prices to get, regardless uh, of whether there's any utilitarian value to it. It's instinctive. Uh, and uh, it's not too much to say for reasons that I could argue but don't have time now. Uh, that it's a residual habitat profess, uh, preference that all animals uh, display and that is necessary for their survival. And I will conclude with this, and um, I'm going to leave it at this as you read this, as to where we go from here. Uh, I'm going to be a, a little bit strong-worded about the 40 the uh, four decades that we have labored and spun our wheels with uh, Ken selection theory, and I'm guilty of that too, because in my uh, first books in sociobiology, I adopted it as a good genetic explanation. Uh, and those words are that we now have got to clear the wreckage of Ken selection off the road so we can move ahead. And now that that's being done, what I've now written here is, will be much more uh, likely to come to pass. Whether I've actually made any progress toward answering Paul Gauguin's three great questions, uh, whether or not this is likely to be the direction we're going to take in this era, this uh, domain of evolutionary theory, I lead to your good offices, you future scientists and to the development of history and I thank you for listening to me tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Ed. <laughs>
Okay, what's the difference between eusocial and social? Because, come on, there's herds and flocks and all kinds of things that are social. Yeah. Eusocial, you sort of make be gentle or soft or something. It's only it's a little fiercer than that. It's a little more specific. Uh, well, it just means true. We just use that word to mean, uh, as I said earlier, the um, a society that uh, is uh, based in part upon division of labor uh, that is altruistic and quality among competing individuals within the group uh, that covers uh, two or more generations uh, and involves the uh, care and rearing of the young cooperatively. That's you, Soto. Of course, uh, it's very different in insects as it is from what it is in humans uh, because we have this immense overlay of cultural modification of our behavior, and uh, we have this ability, uh, this amazing genius of elaborating knowledge and uh, modulating our behavior accordingly to our own benefit. But we seem to be relatively short uh, in a lot of our, uh, of our, our activities in actually applying rationality. Uh, we uh, have, um, you know, we're, for one thing, uh, this obsession with uh, group identity has, uh, I think, uh, hobbled us badly. And we need to form new groups. We'll always form groups. I don't think we'll ever get away from that. We're not going to have one world uh, with one big collectivity and Facebook. The ants keep trying that. There's the superorganism, which you define that these colonies become. And then you were mentioning to me earlier the super colonies, like the Argentine ants that lately invaded the West Coast. Uh, what would keep humans from doing a super colony thing to where basically it's all one, uh, one social group, and that's Earth? The Argentine ant, and there are a few other species that have created super colonies. Another one is a fire ant. Uh, did this, I mean, they didn't do their own purpose, but what they did, they changed from uh, a species that have distinct colonies that are always at war, the way ants are. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, ants are fearsomely uh, cootered to conduct war mm -hmm. and defend their colony and so on. Uh, they uh, went to a super colony by a single mutation. It's been identified in the fire ant uh, as one that... Um, actually silences the ability to distinguish one colony from another. So they blend together. And uh, also these super colonies have uh, lots and lots of queens where ordinarily only one queen, the mother queen, is tolerated. Uh, it's due to, uh, the silencing is due to um, uh, an inability to uh, smell or detect the distinction in the colony odors that every, every colony of ants has. It has a, uh, a peculiar, its own peculiar blend of hydrocarbons in the waxy coating. It's like, uh, you know, the precise bouquet of a wine. And you've got to be able to have a very sensitive taste to distinguish it and identify it. And they lose that taste. And they also lose the ability to recognize that there's more than one queen. So the result is that it just grows on uh, more and more. Why isn't then the world filled with super colonies of ants instead of ordinary ants? Why? I'll tell you. 
because uh, super colonies usually appear only in disturbed areas where competition is low with other kinds of, of ants. And when you have a, a population or say there where a typical local ant community uh, that you get, say, in a woodland or a natural meadow, would have anywhere from 10 to maybe 30 or 40 species in the north temperate zone. And each one of those species and its has its colonies that are with a different armamentarian for colony defense. And the super colony would simply not be able to deal with all of them. Uh, and uh, particularly being having trouble with its own recognition of colonies. Uh, so they can't penetrate easily, and this has been shown experimentally, they can't get into undisturbed environments with natural colonies. Variety keeps feeding. What? It sounds like variety is of the essence, that, that if you get too much uniformity, you lose your... Thank you for giving me an opening to plea for biodiversity. <laughs> I mean, we really need these natural environments with as many species that are in normal residence as we can preserve because uh, the, uh, all of the studies we've made of community organization and stability in natural communities of species has shown us that uh, we need lots of species for insurance, for example, when one species goes extinct, there will always be another species that can fill that niche and the community of species can go on. Uh, we need it for resistance to uh, physical environmental changes. Most of these species have homeostatic devices that they use. Uh, and we just need to keep a natural world with a maximum number of um, species that naturally coexist with one another. You make a similar case for a variety of, of biological humans and of, of cultures, it sounds like. Uh, I do. In the book, I, uh, for example, I'm often asked the question, um, is, are, is humanity evolving still? Uh, we did go through quite a lot of evolution right at the uh, time of uh, the breakout. Uh, but uh, it mostly had to do with resistance to disease and to the ability to acquire uh, new food products. Uh, an independent uh, origin of uh, adult lactose tolerance in Europe, Eurasia, and also in Africa is, a, is an example of that, which allowed herding to become a primary means of, of uh, making a living. But um, most of evolution, uh, what we call progressive evolution, it's just not occurring. We're not getting bigger brains. Uh, we're not getting any better looking. <laughs> but uh, what is happening of profound importance is that we're homogenizing. Where previously the most of human variation was geographic. You know, you get it from going from one locality to another. We called it racial. Now, people are intermarrying and traveling worldwide, and uh, they are simply uh, homogenizing the entire human genotype. 
aware there were previously big differences between localities, but not much, that much within localities. Now it's the reverse. Now there are less, fewer and fewer real differences from one place on the world to another. And if we keep the kind of spread that we're still making, transport and intermarriage, theoretically, uh, we'll end up with people in Beijing and in Stockholm being the same, statistically. However, as a result of this, we're also expanding enormously the diver genetic diversity within communities, mm -hmm. meaning that we are creating a large number of new human genotypes, and that will increase. I like that idea because I think we uh, are a species that depends upon diversity. Diversity of personalities and abilities, and, uh, and what we'll get is a lot more of that diversity, and we'll get perhaps new forms of genius. Uh, we'll get new forms of ability. Maybe someone will run a two-hour marathon, and maybe it won't be from Kenya either. <laughs> a couple questions from, from uh, people here. Uh, Dov Yaganuma asks, can your social nesting, the social nesting step be tested? Is there a short life cycle species that is near your sociality that could be pushed there by basically prompting a, the nesting situation and see if they, uh, if they make the jump? I mean, can we? Yeah, this, is this, could this be an experiment that could be run that oh, on yes. a species that is on the it threshold, has, it has been you run. know, run your hypothesis on it and see no, if it goes it, your it social? it has been run. Hmm? And when, yes, it has been run. And? And uh, the result is extraordinarily interesting. The Japanese started this, but some American investigators have repeated the experiment. You take uh, bees, particularly uh, little sweat bees that form the nest, but they haven't in solitary fashion, but they haven't yet got together, or the offspring don't stay around with the mother so that they have a little eusocial colony. Mm -hmm. And if you uh, force uh, two of these females together as they're ready to make their nest into such a small area uh, that they can only make one nest, uh, then uh, one of them that starts digging and starts the nest becomes the dominant female and the other then comes in and helps her. And uh, when the nest is built, the one that starts digging it, the dominant, becomes the queen and lays the eggs, and the other one goes out foraging. This is what I call spring-loaded adaptation, spring-loaded pre-adaptation. I think you got to explain what spring-loading is. This is a... Uh, spring-loaded means that um, you have the tendency to do something that can be actually, under other circumstances, a big evolutionary jump. But because of other traits you have, uh, you are uh, preset to do something that takes that jump if you make another kind of change. In other words, these bees are territorial. That means that they already have built-in aggression. Territoriality is a form of, of dominance. You know, you get too close to my territory, and yeah, I'll chase you, and you, you yield because this is the strategy in that game, is to yield and stay with your territory, even a small territory. So it's that behavior, which is just about universal. Uh, insects of all kinds that are built nests tend to be very territorial. Translates when you force them to use the same nest, 
into one now dominating the other and saying, in effect, this is my territory. You're the worker. And you actually can create new social colonies, simple colonies, in the laboratory. I'm wondering, so you've made the math case, Novak is, Martin Novak has made the math case that uh, kin selection, inclusive fitness, doesn't really play out. You've made a lot of the biological argument um, that it doesn't play that way in the, in the species, including us. Does multi-level selection invite mathematical depiction? Or is it going to be too vague to actually no, play out in equations? The problem was that Ken's selection was too vague. Okay. We went four uh, decades without any mathematician trying to plunge, to take it to the bottom of the assumptions to find the consequences. And when that was done, it was found to be unsound, invalid. Uh, in the case of uh, natural, it's a very good question. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the case of multi-level selection, we're returning now, in a way, uh, to a, uh, a system of genetic change that's much more palpable and measurable, both at the group level and an individual level. And there already is a very strong and well-developed field of population genetics mm -hmm. prepared to deal with gene frequencies that change as you have different advantages given to uh, group versus group and individual versus individual. Uh, I think that, uh, I, uh, that we'll see a, a whole new mathematical theory of multi-level selection develop that's more realistic because there'll be a lot of biology behind it, which shows us uh, the states, the, these unstable states. And this is one of the most profound aspects of this, if it is correct, and I think it is correct, that we are permanently unstable. We're permanently conflicted. And we just, it's, we, we, we don't have any ideal society or arrangement to, to move toward. What we have is a muting, self-understanding and a muting of the conflicts that come irrationally out of that instability and lack of understanding of what altruism is, where it comes from, why we are the way we do, why we worry all the time, why we gossip all the time, and all that. We need to understand ourselves not as errant primates uh, that just haven't found its way to an ideal social mm -hmm. condition. Uh, quite the contrary, we're always going to be this way, and we just somehow got to do it through self-understanding and through conflict resolution and mechanism for more cooperation and tolerance. So your colleague at Harvard, Steven Pinker, came out with this book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. And there's a question here from Jack Sawyer. What part of evolution, what part does evolution play in the decline of violence, cruelty, and injustice that, that, that Steve has documented yeah. pretty well, basically through human history? And actually, all the way back to the chimps in, in his version. Yeah, well, we may be overall, we certainly had a dramatic decrease, or, and we'll have it more in the future of national war, you mm -hmm. know, big war. Mm -hmm. But uh, I haven't read his book yet. Can you tell me if he really documented it by including um, a civil war? 
Oh, local yeah, no, ethnic. You'll, you'll love it. It's documented up the wazoo. He's got the okay. same pictures you have, people with spears in them. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, if the, well, actually, that's the trend we would hope for. And it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, does that, the question basically implies that it's not just culture, there's something genetic that is there, because you've written long ago about the gene culture coevolution. Yeah, that's another subject so, altogether. So this yeah. sort of thing should show up over time, and I think he uh, refers to it in the genome, that this de-violencing of yeah. humanity uh, is being selected for, probably in a, in a group-selected fashion, among other things, because your point is that uh, groups that cooperate well beat groups that don't cooperate yeah. so well, okay. and this is all part of that. Yeah. Well, we want a lovable humanity, but without, uh, with not at the price of um, our all becoming wimps. <laughs> Now, maybe because you're an ant guy, you've been, all of your story has been very violent. Yeah. Uh, you know, this group beats that group and basically chews them up and eats them. Yeah. Um, but a lot of Darwinian fitness has to do with just, you know, what group makes the best use of the available resources to okay. turn into the next generation. Most, uh, most uh, natural selection occurs that way. Who uses the resources best and fastest mm -hmm. is the species that can displace other species. And that's one of the reasons for the success of the ants, uh, because they have really a super organism, not the super colony. We were talking about Argentina as a super colony, but super organisms like ant uh, really are operating like one big organism, and they have distributed intelligence so that even though they're instinctive ants, know a lot. They could remember a lot. Honeybees, some ants can remember the location in a complicated environment of five sites where they can get food, and they can remember the time of the day when they get the food. They go out at the right hour. They do things like that. They're pretty smart. And an ant can run, learn a maze a um, rat maze, uh, but it takes a lot longer. It takes twice the time, and so on. So they learn these simple things, and what you have is a bunch of ants, you know, the ones that you step on thoughtlessly. <laughs> these ants are out there, and they're scouts. <clears throat> Many of them, they know that part of the territory, uh, and uh, they are searching uh, for it, uh, through it, and others in other parts of the territory know their part, and so on. Uh, and they are equipped then to find food or encounter an enemy scout and get back fast and then bring others out. Also, they have a network of security around it. And also, there are ants very familiar with the nursing process, uh, with building a part of the nest and so on. This distributed intelligence and bits of memory that improve their performance uh, enormously uh, enhances the competitive power, productivity, and the competitive strength of a colony over an individual organism. There's controversy around group selection. What would it take to disprove group selection? <laughs> <laughs> 
It's, it's got to be a falsifiable hypothesis to be science. So as the, the science moves forward now with your encouragement into the area of looking at the population biology, you know, how yeah. genomes are shifting yeah. in relation to the instincts uh, and forces you're yeah. talking about, what would be an indicator that um, this isn't working out? I believe that one... Well, let me, let me come back just to Ken's selection and show you an mm -hmm. example to just prove it. <clears throat> Long ago, uh, and this came in the textbook, and some of you sitting here may have suffered through having to memorize this false proof of a false theory, uh, was uh, it said that Ken's selection must be true because uh, most of the cases of the RGU sociality, you know, this altruistic, organization occur in the hymenoptera. And the hymenoptera have a form of sex determination called haplodiploidy. That means unfertilized eggs become, uh, become male, fertilized eggs become female. And also that means then that workers do not have a father, but they have a grandfather. And workers are more, you can do the math, workers are uh, more closely related and share genes than, to each other than they are to um, mother, the mother. And <clears throat> that the, uh, it seemed that this is where almost all the cases of eusociality had originated. To me, this was Newtonian. It was a marvelous demonstration mm -hmm. that hymenoptera, bees, ants, wasps were where most of this action was taking place. And they did indeed have this quality that sisters forming the worker caste were uh, acting as though they were favoring the closest kin. Unfortunately, as search for other eusocial species spread, <clears throat> so many diplodiploidy, ones that didn't fit it, were discovered that it no longer became significant. Thus, in this sense, this is a retrodictive, uh, the kind of retrodictive uh, a test that we use in a lot of evolutionary biology. Uh, that was abandoned. Uh, and we had to just sort of adjust the whole theory so that that included that fact was, did not fit. That was a test, it failed. That didn't stop us though. We uh, kept on believing it. We have yet to develop a rigorous test of group selection in the field, except to say that by common observation, we know that um, colonies with certain traits of the same species, such as larger colonies, yeah. uh, colonies that, uh, that uh, can, can prevail consistently, so that rapid growth of colonies clearly gives that superiority. We also know that you can take away the soldier caste and that colony loses in combat, things like that. Mm -hmm. I, I think gradually we'll be able to test it quite well. Furthermore, this whole this matter of uh, <clears throat> the so far invariant pathway uh, to uh, preadaptations leading up to the origin of eusociality is by itself a strong piece of, of evolutionary evidence. Yeah, you got some nice mechanisms there. I like especially the single allele that basically silences a particular behavior, like the yeah, dispersal we'll get to of the, the uh, that, one, That's an easy jump to make. One of the things that will be done now, I mean, as we proceed, you and I were talking about the amazing advances in genetic engineering, you know, mm -hmm. they're combined with uh, this uh, warp speed genomic studies that are ongoing. 
is that we will, and I know others are, uh, some genetics are doing it now with social insects, uh, and this, the way for them is now cleared by this new theory. It's a much clearer way of formulating the problems and asking the right question. They're looking for those genes that actually cause the step. They cause spring loading. Mm -hmm. They cause uh, the, uh, the altruistic response under certain circumstances. And there will come a time when human genetics reaches the point where we'll be able to get some idea of the genetic basis in those personality traits, which include uh, empathy uh, or aggressiveness or assertiveness versus uh, reticence. There are a series of personality traits that are precisely measured in identical versus fraternal twin studies indicates that there's heritability of as much as one half in many of these personality traits. Eventually, we'll get to the bottom of those. There'll be multiple genes, but we will learn what makes us uh, human in these particular respects. This leads to a couple of questions from several people on basically the where are we going level. Um, Bruce Miller says, are there levels of eusociality not yet attained uh, by humans that might be driven by more of this kind of selection. Uh, Byron asks, if eusociality arose late, do you think a larger scale organization or evolutionary scheme lies in the deep future? Um, what's the future of eusociality? Not the science, but the yeah, actual yeah. event. Well, I really think that uh, we're going to, uh, it, it's, you know, the, the, the ancient solution. We're just gonna find out how to get along together, so mm -hmm. basically. Uh, we're going to put a lot more emphasis on conflict resolution. I think we're going to put a lot less emphasis upon idealistic ideologies, you know, that think they have an end point, you know, that all humanity should be moving on. I think there's going to be, uh, in spite of uh, what's happening in the United States right now, I think there will be a decline in organized religions, but especially with reference, not transcendent or spiritual, seeking, but rather the creation stories. That's the killer, the creation stories. Hmm. It gets set in stone, and people then belong to groups, and they feel they have to have complete fidelity to that creation story of their tribe. And if you question any of the creation story, you know, like something like evolution, uh, then they are offended, and they get hostile. Why? Because you're attacking their tribe. We need to get, we're going to see a decline, I think, in uh, religion creation stories, religious you wrote creation a, stories. You wrote a very friendly book to Christians in America. Yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> out in the lobby called The Creation, uh, where you say pastor at the beginning of each chapter, and you're basically talking to Christians um, in a very friendly fashion uh, to join forces in basically efforts toward conservation and other such things. The end of this book, you're pretty tough on religion. And those people you were sweet to in the last book, you basically don't give any. Well, if you read Creation, that's the book in which I appeal to uh, the religious, and particularly evangelicals, mm -hmm. who make up 40% of Americans. Uh, I uh, said right from the start, I'm an atheist. I have a totally different worldview from you. Mm -hmm. And I described what they believe. You are fundamentalist. You believe literally in the the Bible, but I think that if we sat down together at a table 
we could become friends and talk about it a lot. And that maybe we would then come to a conclusion that we are natural allies and we can address a question or a problem of immense importance to us all, regardless of our worldview, and that's the creation. I was willing to use the word creation, you know, the biodiversity of life. Uh, and that was the argument I made. And I got a lot of cooperation. I got invited by the, uh, uh, the leadership of the Mormon Church to visit uh, and talk about it at length. And I visited a number of uh, strongholds of the Southern Baptist uh, Convention and met and a number of religious leaders. <clears throat> it didn't go very far because I don't think most people uh, really, you know, even if they agreed with you, they don't, that, particularly if you're, van, you're evangelical, and many and Christians, other Christian sects, some of them, <clears throat> this earth is not anything you need to be concerned about. This is just a way station. And the far right believes that you should uh, not worry about the environment. In fact, the book of Revelation, uh, written by uh, the uh, John the Divine showing incidentally all the signs of paranoid schizophrenia without <laughs> it's a theme I develop in the book and it'll get me in trouble I know but that's it it looks like the ramblings of a paranoid schizophrenic off his meds uh, but the fact was that Many of the extreme religious believe, you know, that the, the creation story makes them believe, and the book of Revelation, Lord help us, makes them believe that we're just here uh, for a short period of time, humanity is, <clears throat> and that what we should be doing is not worrying about species, we should be worrying about saving souls. The important thing is to save as many, which means bring them into the tribe of Southern Baptism or other forms of evangelicalism. How do I survive in Alabama? I'm very popular there. <laughs> and one of the reasons I'm popular is that I love them. And I've just written a history of South Alabama. And I've written a novel based on it. And I respect all of it. And besides, it's a mixed society, just like California. Uh, it's, uh, there are a lot of uh, people who are highly educated and not, you know, uh, strong uh, right-wing uh, fundamentalist. Besides, <clears throat> once you've been saved, and I went under the water when I was a kid, then they expect that before you die, you will come back into the fold. And I'm not going, you know, I'm, I, I'm not to be uh, dismissed easily. Because they still that. have time, you know. What? So, uh, <laughs> there's some... A couple of questions on the, basically the future of Ed, Ed Wilson. Uh, William Petrie asks, do uh, you have advice for young whippersnappers on how to stay active and engaged for the many decades, for example, you have? You're pretty busy for an 82-year-old. Um, and I, I understand you're working on a book, Letters to Young Scientists? Letters something? to a Young Scientist. I'm writing it right now. Yeah. It's on why we desperately need you if you're ready, if you really want to go into science and technology, whether you're in high school, college, or graduate school, go for it. And I tell them how to succeed and what science is and how to make a career and what science real innovation really is. 
Do you tell them how to succeed for six decades? Do you tell them how to succeed for six decades? How to keep going? How do you, yeah, keep going, exactly. How does a scientist stay fresh? How How do you stay fresh? How do I stay fresh? Genes. Hmm? (laughs) Few alcoholic beverages. (laughs) Um, Love the outdoors. But the one that, uh, you know, I'll say to my fellow oxygenarians. Everyone over 80, raise your hand, Do we have any? Ah, there's an octogenarian. Thank God. (laughs) To my fellow octogenarians, and I say, never retire. That's the important thing. I don't know if you agree with me. Um, You can can step out, you know, of that postmaster's job you had. You can stop uh, brain surgery, especially if you have the tremors. (laughs) But... Find other work, you know, that you've always wanted to do and keep going, even if it's a hard thing to do. Sometimes it's a little harder when you get older to get up in the morning or to face a challenge, you know, or to lug a uh, piece of luggage through a a crowded, uh, a crowded airport jammed with irritating, badly dressed, dressed, (laughs) 20 year old <laughs> on the other hand <laughs> the 80 year olds if they're still functioning got their health basically yeah. got a lot of canny savvy street smart experience to draw on so when you want to make something happen there's a lot of shortcuts you know now to yeah, just make it I'm, happen. Yes, I. Uh, when people respect older people. You know, it's uh, there are places. I knew I'd cross the threshold when young ladies started opening the door for me. <laughs> but <clears throat> the moment of triumph for me was when I arrived in one of my expeditions uh, to the island of Vanuatu. That used to be New Hebrides. This was last December, November. Sorry. I took a group uh, for the studies of the ants in the mountains of Vanuatu, never before explored. And we went, well, I needed to know what the role of Vanuatu is in island jumping from Australia to New Caledonia to Fiji and down from the Solomon Islands. Mm-hmm. So we had to find out what was on Vanuatu. And when I got back in the villages, the word spread that there was an 80-year-old man coming to visit them. I'm not serious. The, uh, the number of Vanuatuans in Southwest Pacific who live to be 65 is under 1%. And to have an 80-year-old come visit them, I was treated with great courtesy. A lot more than I get in Boston. <laughs> you know, Stuart, I think we're losing it here. <laughs> Not quite. I don't think so. Okay. I'll raise one question that's future-oriented, which is you said in way back in the book, Naturalist, I think, that if you were starting over in biology now, that you would be focusing on microbial ecology. And that was before shotgun sequencing of buckets of seawater and metagenomics and all that kind of stuff. Why... 
Why microbes? Why microorganisms? I could see it coming. Hmm? You know, dark, uh, microorganisms, including bacteria and archaea, are the dark, dark matter of the biological world. We know maybe 10,000 species, still only 10,000. Mm -hmm. You can pick up one gram of soil. That's, you know, a, a five cent piece is five grams. Pick up one gram of garden soil. You've got one billion bacteria in there, representing five to 6,000 species, all of them unknown to science, virtually all. Three million species have been estimated to be in one ton of garden soil. They're all distinct genomes doing their own thing, mm -hmm. requiring certain conditions of pH, nutrient surrounding. They each have an evolutionary history. Our lives depend on them. What do you mean a lot depends on them? Oh, well, how the soil works, how the atmosphere works, stuff like that? What about the one to 10 trillion bacteria living in symbiosis of your body? Three pounds of yeah, onboard. Right. This life. is a, one of the amazing new developments. Well, of course, the soil would die. I mean, everything would die if the bacteria died. Mm -hmm. I mean, the material and, and energy cycles would uh, just halt. However, uh, for pure science, to study the world of microorganisms is just an amazing frontier, and we now have the technology for it. You just mentioned swift sequencing. You can sequence an entire bacterium genome in just a couple of hours now. Uh, but um, the, uh, we know that the human body, I've just attended a conference in Washington of TED Med, you know, this is the medical branch of TED, the super technology organization. And um, there were the three speakers there were all, it was amazing, molecular biologists, cell biologists, microbiologists. They were all talking of evolutionary biology and ecology. And I, you know, so many molecular biologists until a few years ago thought, well, that was for dummies. Right. Uh, you know, that was old fashioned biology. Now they're suddenly dawned on them that this is where they need That's to be great. going. Uh, one, for example, uh, described the intricacies of our dependence, interdependence with bacteria, the coevolution of our bacterial flora, uh, that uh, the 500 or more bacteria in the mouth and esophagus are there to uh, protect themselves and protect you from pathogenic bacteria, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but uh, one speaker from Penn State, his name slipped my mind, is leading a group that is uh, probably one of a number of groups, is beginning to address this question of uh, the dire danger of antibiotic mm -hmm. uh, hardening of, um, of pathogenic bacteria so that we can't keep dousing them with antibiotics and get away with it going to run out of antibiotics as an arms race that we may lose. So now there's a great deal of talk, without even knowing what these, most of these bacteria are, of uh, developing theories from evolutionary biology and from ecology of creating a balance of protective bacterial symbionts that we already have uh, with pathogens just like invasive species. Uh, that uh, are coming in and destroying, you know, helping destroy our natural ecosystem, we, we, uh, we should look on diseases, microorganisms called diseases, 
as being uh, an invasion of our ecosystem of alien species. So we need to build up our natural and hold our natural microbial flora in the same way that we need to build up or allow to continue to exist our natural ecosystems that protect our environment. Interesting to see this way of medical science now going. So there you have it. There's a great deal of science yet to come, as we just saw a tiny sample of, and a great deal of Ed Wilson yet to come, it seems. Thank you for coming tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much. Right. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.